Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. It's time for another special edition. This time it features my appearance on the Democratically 2020 podcast with my former colleague, Karen Robinson. Karen and I talk a little bit about my book, Bad News, and also about US politics. I should just add that we recorded this show before the death of George Floyd. Very much hope you find it interesting. And if you do, please do subscribe to Karen's podcast. It's a really excellent take on US politics. So I want to welcome to the podcast Dr. Mark Pack. Uh, Mark is the currently the president of the Liberal Democrat Party here in the United United Kingdom. Uh, Mark is also a writer, a commentator, an activist, a political organizer, a former colleague of mine uh, mm. for many years ago. We worked together for a good long while, and the author uh, of two excellent books, which are highly relevant to this podcast. Um, one called "101 Ways to Win an Election," and the book he's here to talk to us about today, "Bad News." what the headlines don't tell us. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Karen. Lovely to see you again, as you say. It feels like a long time since we were work colleagues. An awful lot has happened (laughs) in the world and in politics to make that, that era feel a long time ago. For sure. It has been uh, it has been quite a while ago. I think it was the 2010 uh, UK general election was happening around the time we were working together. And then after that but uh yeah what counted as a political scandal back then seems quite tame (laughs) by comparison i i i was sort of slightly pinching myself when there was the whole thing with donald trump and bleach obviously health announcement don't drink bleach to be healthier it won't (laughs) be clear but that i think in 2010 if you or i had been watching some political satire and whether maybe the thick of it in here in the UK and that there'd been a joke around that, we would have thought that was so improbable. Yeah. And yet now it's not just plausible in satire, it's actual reality. Yeah, I think the satirists are kind of out of work right now. There's not there's not much to there's nowhere to go. <laughs> yeah. Where do you go after bleach? Yeah, I mean, a colleague of mine said to me the other day, uh, Armando Iannucci has taken over the right the show running for reality. <laughs> um yeah so what a world Mm. what a world um but we're here to talk about uh bad news Mm. um which is the the cracking book that you've uh that you've written all about the the media um and i thought it was really fascinating because a lot of people have criticized the media for specific problems that they've had or specific mistakes that they've made. But the argument of this book is more about almost the business as usual ways that the media operates. Um, what is it that you see um, our press getting wrong and, and why does that happen? I think there are two fundamental problems, one which we can be generous about and one maybe slightly less generous about. The generous one is that the basic structure of the news So telling you things that have happened differently very recently is a pretty poor way of understanding the world, that quite often understanding what's going on in the world involves things that are dull or slow moving or very gradual, relentless trends over long periods of time. And all those sorts of things basically don't make the news. The news is all about the exceptional, the unusual. And sometimes that is an accurate representation of, of the world, but it misses out huge parts of what's going on. The other problem with the news, where one can be a little bit more generous in understanding the, the, the underlying flaws, but there is a bit of criticism definitely in this, 
is that the news is really desperate to grab your attention because for most news outlets even if they're non-commercial some sense of is their audience up or down is a big driving force in the organization so here in the uk for example tv news channels that run adverts trying to get an audience is really important but even the bbc which is not advertising funded has a big concern about what its audience levels are and so that desire to attract an audience results in headlines in particular but not just headlines often looking to lure you in in a way that the truth doesn't really justify so to give an example that i talk about in the book there was this controversy in west london uh, fairly recently around residents wanting a local youth club to be closed and replaced with something else and i don't know the details of the case. I have no idea of the rights or wrongs of whether the youth club is a lovely local service that NIMBY residents are wrong to be opposed to, or maybe the youth club is actually genuinely inappropriate for the venue that it's in. The, the fascinating thing, though, from the point of view of understanding the news is the Guardian newspaper ran a story about this, and they talked about what residents wanted to be done with the site instead of a youth club. And two of the options the story talks about our one is to replace it with a private library. The other is to replace it with a coffee shop. The headline was all about residents want to replace youth shop, a uh, youth club with coffee shop. Now that sounds really, I should be outraged by what, you know, how on earth can these selfish residents be thinking that? Of course, if the headline had been residents want to replace youth club with library, that would have been, oh, that's a bit weird, but they're both good virtuous things that are, you know, yeah communities should have probably it would have set the whole tone of the story and people's emotional reactions off completely differently why did the guardian choose one headline and the other well of course the one that sounds outrageous is the one that grabs our attention that makes us click through that makes us read down the story even though the truth would have been just as well if not maybe better served by the alternative headline yeah and i think one of the lessons from that from election campaigning is that uh, politicians and in particular I'm thinking the current president of the United States um, become quite media savvy and they start doing things and saying things specifically um, to generate that kind of attention um, and Donald Trump is particularly good at saying anything he thinks will get attention whether he thinks it's positive or negative for himself um, and in a way he's kind of hacked the news cycle because yeah. he, he just dominates coverage all the time what are the special challenges for a media organization in that kind of environment when they're basically they're basically given constant sugar here's here's yeah. more good stuff i can report on well the, the thing that donald trump is very skillful at is being inaccurate in ways that are not wholly false and now it might sound a bit odd uh, particularly coming from me in some ways defending what donald trump says but <laughs> to give an example when there was a big controversy a little while ago about untrue claims he made about the murder rate in Chicago, you know, those were straightforwardly untrue, inaccurate. However, it is also true that, particularly to say British eyes, the murder rate in Chicago is shockingly high. You know, it is a major problem. And so by exaggerating the scale of the problem so far that he took it into something being completely untrue, that's definitely something we should condemn and something the media should critique and, and, and so on. 
But the risk is when you're arguing over the accuracy of a number, when there is actually a genuine problem there, is it sounds a lot like being pedantic nitpicking. Yeah. And, you know, oh, look, does it really matter if the deaths are, you know, 50 or 100? Surely, you know, arguing over that sounds like you're missing the point that loads of people are dying. And so that's what Donald Trump, I think, is really skillful at doing. It's perhaps also what the in the European referendum campaign here a couple of years back, the Leave campaign were quite skillful at doing as well, is picking controversies where the argument over whether or not something is true slightly misses the point. And just to give you a different example of this, because I think this is this is a point that people quite often sort of bridle at a bit. You know, surely the truth is all that matters. How can you possibly think that there's more to it than that? Think about what happens when a film or a TV series gets made about somebody's life. Um, a nice example of this is a film I watched, finally got round to watching not that long ago, about the life of Brian Clough, mm -hmm. a famous, very successful and very controversial football manager. And the film takes lots of liberties with the exact sequence of events and what different characters exactly did or didn't do. But it does it in a way that makes for a really effective artistic piece of work, but also one that draws out the truth of the character about Brian mm -hmm. Clough really effectively. And of course, that's what artists do all the time. They exaggerate and they omit and they rearrange in order to try to bring out some deeper truth. And in that sense, Donald Trump is somewhat of an artist, mm. that he rearranges the truth. He omits key information. He yeah. makes up other bits of information, but to paint a picture. And the thing that I think the media often get wrong, and particularly political campaigners often get wrong, is to think that the only thing you need to do is to engage with the accuracy of the picture. What you also need to do is to engage with that broader question. So in the case of, say, the deaths in Chicago, yes, understanding the scale of them is important, and that is part of what's needed to tackling an issue, but that's not the only thing you need to do. Yeah. And and that's how Trump winds, winds up making himself look like he's some sort of bigger truth teller as opposed to, mm. you know, uh, the nation's most prominent lawyer, um, because mm. it, it, he's he comes across as the one who's ignoring all these piddly little, you know, nitpicky arguments and saying, here is a big truth no one else wants yeah. to say. It kind of blends conspiracy yeah. theory and narrative storytelling yeah. and um, and using some of the media's worst instincts against itself. And, and it can also work on a much more benign scale. So yeah. to take an example of a political podcast I really like listening to, Not Enough Champagne, and um, Corey and Steve, who are the two presenters, will probably be a bit baffled if I tell them I, that I compared them to Donald Trump in an interview. <laughs> but the thing that I really like about them is they're both Labour Party supporters, so a different party from mine. And I like listening to them, A, because they do a really good podcast. But B, because their take on the world is different from mine, it helps me remember how other people see things. Mm -hmm. But the, the relevance with and the, in this context is that Corey and Steve, when they're talking about the Liberal Democrats, relatively frequently get a particular detail slightly wrong, just as I would if I was talking about another political party you know, rather than my own. And the, the thing that that so often reminds me is the fact that they might have got a little detail wrong very rarely undermines their argument. And so it's a reminder that if you just zoom in on the factual details, oh, actually, no, it was Paddy Ashdown who did that rather than Charles Kennedy, you can miss the point that the overall argument might still have some validity, 
And if you want to persuade people to reject that argument, then you need to engage with that rather than the pedantry over, you know, which Lib Dem leader was it in particular who first adopted a particular policy? Um, so apologies to Corey and Steve. They <laughs> I promise that's the only respect in which. In many other crucial respects, I'm sure they're very unlike Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that strikes me is because what, what you're kind of talking about here is context. It's almost mm-hmm. the kind of seeing the story at the right level, you know, yes, getting the details right, but also understanding the thrust of it. Exactly. And one of the things that it strikes me has been a real big change in the media landscape over the past decade, decade and a half or so, has been that people are receiving information in a slightly decontextualized format because we receive so much of our media um, via social media. And of course, famously, Donald Trump in his 2016 campaign, and again, in, in, in he's trying in 2020 to run what is largely a Facebook uh, campaign um, and also using partisan news outlets like Fox News. And he's he's now very fond of this um, One America News Network, which is basically, as far as I can see, propaganda. Um, but he's using those the kind of decontextualized um, social media conversations to to drive a small piece of the story into people's minds um and it's not just donald trump i mean i think this is kind of how the world works nowadays and it makes people sort of confused and disoriented is there anything that we can do to kind of help or encourage people to start consuming media in ways that might be more conducive to understanding yeah i i guess i'm quite an optimist on this front or maybe i'm a pessimist about the past (laughs) in the as you rightly say Social media often takes stories out of context. On the other hand, it gives you access to other takes and other perspectives massively more easily than used to be the case. So when I was a child growing up, there were, well, for a good chunk of my childhood, only three TV channels in the UK. And the newspaper purchasing habits would be a household would buy one newspaper Monday to Saturday maybe by a different newspaper on the Sunday. So your access to different perspectives on stories was nearly non-existent. This was really brought home to me, actually, recently watching the film Fire in Babylon uh, about the West Indian fast bowlers of the 70s and 80s. And as a child, the only take I had on those controversies was through the Times newspaper, because that was the newspaper my dad read. So those were the sports pages I saw and BBC's test match special radio coverage. I've obviously have learned since that there are rather more aspects to those controversies, (laughs) particularly if you have a better understanding of the history of the West Indies. But that film really brought home just how lopsided the version of events at the time that I saw through those outlets in a way that now when there's a similar controversy, alternative viewpoints are immediately accessible. And a good example of that in the UK is over stories about gun control in in America. Obviously, broadly speaking, people all across the political spectrum in the UK just find it uh, anything from baffling to horrifying, (laughs) the many attitudes towards gun control in the US. But what you can do courtesy of the internet is actually find out more about what those other perspectives are. So when there was a lot of controversy a couple of years back about a proposal to tighten gun control in the US that involved using the FBI's sort of list of suspected terrorists. The way that got reported in the UK was basically those mad American right wing gun nuts. How could any of them possibly be so obsessed with opposing gun control? They even want possible terrorists to be able to have access to guns. 
And I remember thinking at the time, well, I'm pretty sure if I was in the US, I would be very heavily in favour of gun control. But does really every opponent of that proposal, uh, is every opponent of them completely mad? And what I could therefore do online is go to things like the Fox News website and hear the other side. Mm. Now, the other side I didn't find convincing, but the other side actually of the argument did make some quite good points about how unreliable that FBI list is. And therefore, if you're introducing gun control on that basis, you're actually introducing gun control in a much less rigorous way than it might sound if you don't really know much about the topic. Now, for me, that doesn't that wouldn't persuade me to therefore oppose Mm. that measure but it was a really good example of how if you want to and that's a big if but if you want to the internet including social media makes it much easier to check out the other side of a story i think there's truth in that um but i think the crucial point is what you said at the end about the if you want to and and i would i would also add if you have the time and ability um that's important one of the things that's that's kind of dispiriting often about american elections and i I suspect probably elections in lots of places is that the vast majority of the electorate has already made up their mind long since which means that the people who are the decision makers the the kind of the swing voters who make the the impact whose whose late decisions will will move the election one way or the other are often the least informed and the least engaged so you really basically get one chance to get the attention of of this very critical group of voters who are the least likely group of voters to think that's interesting i wonder if there's more to that story let me find out um now in some ways that you know they're actually quite open-minded because they're not partisan so in some ways you know they they can be persuaded um at the right points but i think it's it, it's i guess i just would say i'm skeptical that the existence of accurate information is going to be enough. It feels like we need to do a better job of getting, especially into big mainstream outlets, kind of accurate information in the first place, because that may be the only place that the most relevant voters are ever going to hear this information. Yeah, and there's a related issue, which actually I don't really touch on in the book, but about this fear about what are often called data voids or Google Mm. voids, where if you search for a topic, the truth is very hard to find. And an example of this would be there is a sort of anti-Semitic myth about the first edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica that came out after the Second World War. And I'd spent a bit of time trying to understand exactly the cause of the myth and, and so on. And the thing that was really striking is if you go Googling for it, you you only get the anti-Semites. It's really hard to dig in to find the truth. And essentially, the the reason I'm sure it's a myth is because of my preconceptions about anti-Semitism and about the Holocaust. And in this case, I'm absolutely happy to stand 100 percent behind my preconceptions as being the right guy to the truth. But one has to be sensibly wary about realising if that's what you're relying on. That's not really the best of situations. So quite often the problem is the truth is quite hard to find. Yeah. Sometimes because it's slow moving, sometimes because it's dull, sometimes just because it's the angle that really nobody is interested in. Um, The thing, though, is and and I guess this is a thing that maybe just frustrates me a little bit or I wish the media were better at. The truth is often much more interesting. Mm. The, The full story about why 
somebody said something that was untrue or an untrue idea got wide provenance is often as interesting or more interesting and and so there's a missed opportunity there and part of it i think in britain is about what to say the bbc see as its role how important is today's headlines versus accurate information that helps inform people who are looking about something at a slightly slower moving pace. I think that's a really interesting point because one of the really valid points that you make in the book um, is about the media's proclivity for always covering horse race issues. Um, Mm. Horse race as defined, as you correctly say, by kind of the who's ahead and not just in politics, but in anything, you know, is this movie ahead of that movie as opposed to the substance of it? What is this movie about? What's interesting about it, et cetera. And, um, And actually there's some reason to believe that at least in many circumstances, the average American voter, partisans aside but the average american voter the kind of the people in the middle of the partisan context are much more interested in what is this party's position on healthcare than they are in whose party slightly ahead in the polls um and yet this policy debate the kind of substance of it which which you know it can come across as dull if it's badly covered but there are very interesting ways that you can cover it and and ways of covering it with lots of human interest it feels like that gets um it gets put to one side because it's not what's as interesting to the media perhaps because as you said at the beginning it's it's not new yeah and i think that focus on horse race coverage is probably particularly problematic in the us yeah it's a little bit less so in other countries that have a combination of a multi-party system and first past the post because in britain for example that horse race coverage does at least help inform tactical voting considerations where supporters of a third or fourth party might be thinking tactical voting is very important to the liberal democrats exactly (laughs) and so i think there is a bit of legitimate difference there whilst in the us with such a dominant two-party system and the yeah. use of first past the post, although I know that's not the US terminology, but you know the use of first past the post essentially uh, very heavily in, in in the US presidential election, it that's much more problematic if you're if you're just focusing on who's ahead and who's not. As you rightly touched on though, Karen, I think one of the reasons we you do get that coverage is a it's easier, yeah. and it's easier to make it sound like a fun story. But also critics of it have often therefore swung to wishing that people were interested in long, dull coverage. (laughs) The (laughs) challenge is to make the rest of what is happening in an election interesting and and lively. And that definitely can be done. The best of coverage does that. But it is a hard hard challenge. Certainly one should at least be fair to the media in acknowledging it's a tough nut to crack. Yeah, yeah. As usual, it, it, it all boils down to just try try harder. <laughs> exactly. Um, one of the other things that you point out um, in the book, in your chapter on kind of the coverage of elections, which I thought was fascinating, and, and it comes back to the point you were making at the beginning about the kind of whole structure of news is wrongly set up, is that very often... Um, Everything that happens in a campaign cycle, the things that are obsessively covered by the media, the thing the media is basically there to do, don't impact anything. And the outcome of the election is is often determined by factors outside of the campaign cycle, Um, things that, you know, things like the economy, um, kind of the likelihood of the incumbent party to win, etc. And that's never how it's covered because it doesn't feel like an exciting story. Mm. To me, that just feels like an argument which I think is true, that the media just ignore political science. Yeah, and 
a, a good analogy is imagine you know when eventually we have the next olympics who knows quite what year that will be in <laughs> but when we have the next olympics when you get the medal ceremony so when the three gold silver bronze medalists they walk out you know walk out walk up to the podium and they get presented their medal imagine if the sports commentator was covering the three of them walking up to the podium as if it was a horse race and oh I wonder you know is Smith going to walk up to podium number one or is Jones going to beat Smith to po- you know to the gold podium which and you think this is absurd we already know who's got the gold silver and bronze you know that the speed with which they walk and who's closest to which podium is not in any way relevant to which medal they get but news coverage of elections is often of that nature as if it's all about what happens in the few weeks running up to polling day when in fact the results almost always are predominantly about what has happened well before polling day so there's definitely as polling day gets near a really good reason for the media to cover cover the election much more the problem is what the media does is talk then as if the events happening in the last few days of the election are what determines it rather than saying look now you're interested here by the way are the things that happened three years ago that are actually really determining the election and so the whole nature and pitch of election coverage is talking about elections in the wrong way yeah um which is a problem however it's probably more of a problem in the uk than in the us because in the us we are a very closely and narrowly divided country. Um, and in some ways that makes the responsibility on the media much greater because it is true often that small things can tip an election one way or the other. Um, to many Americans, especially I would argue American Democrats, when we think about media misjudgments, the thing that is burned into our brains is um, is what happened in the 2016 election. Um, a number of things about the coverage of Trump versus, versus Clinton. Um, in particular, the relative handling of, of Hillary Clinton's email scandal compared to what we would perceive as being a raft of equally, if not more serious, Trump scandals, which collectively got only about as much attention as the email scandals and this this weighting of it. Do you agree that the media got that wrong in 2016? or uh, and, and if so, what would you suggest they could learn from that experience? I mean, I think... Everyone got it wrong in different ways. Yeah. Um, because the other element that certainly in the coverage that you saw in Britain, where I think the media got it wrong, was there was no real conception of the fact that Hillary Clinton, rightly or wrongly, was a massively unpopular candidate. Um, and I guess you'll probably think wrongly, but, you know, rightly or wrongly, yeah. as it was an objective fact that going into that election, Hillary Clinton was an extremely unpopular politician by comparison with previous presidential candidates of, of either party. And so I think there was... But not ex- by comparison with with Trump himself. I mean, that's... No, indeed. I mean, they were both quite unpopular. In, absolutely. But the coverage was very much in the tone of Donald Trump is phenomenally unpopular. Yeah. And oh, Hillary Clinton might be a bit ahead of him rather than this is the contest of I think it's it's it, it's pretty close to being true. You know, literally the two most, un, you know, probably the, the most unpopular combo of presidential candidates ever. Yeah. Um, you know, even if that's not literally true, certainly it was true for a long period of time running up to 2016. Yeah. And so in that sense, I think, I think there was a, a blindness to Hillary Clinton's unpopularity on the part of many 
people and media outlets who push comes to shove would have preferred her to win. I think there was also a problem definitely in how the media covered Donald Trump, which partly goes back to what we were talking about earlier around sort of pedantry versus versus big picture. But most crucially, the incentives that drive journalists very rarely point towards success means you need to have both Democrats and Republicans trust you. Now, if you think about the media as in part a predominantly commercial enterprise, you know, one of the basic rules of success if you're running a commercial enterprise or thinking about a commercial enterprise is which is the niche that we're going to go after which is the bit of the market that we're going to try to sell to and so you have this problem that media outlets you know can be really successful if only republicans trust them by and large mm. and they can be really successful if only democrats trust them by and large. it's one advantage we have in britain with the bbc and other countries have in other ways with the other sort of state broadcasters in particular is that when it's done well you have a state broadcaster or a broadcaster regulated in some way by the state that has to try to appeal across political divides so even in britain um a tv station like itv which is a commercial tv station because of its regulatory framework if only conservatives in britain liked it or only labor supporters liked it that would be a problem yeah and and i, I think what we see in the US is that there is not that much of a market for media outlets that are trusted across the political divide and therefore each camp ends up you know very much to its own I'm 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 being a, I'm trying not to fall into that habit that everyone falls into of thinking their country is better than other countries but I <laughs> I do think that model of having a, a media structure where you have significant media outlets who have to try to appeal across the political divide is genuinely really beneficial. That's not just an attempt at sort of British exceptionalism. I think the relationship between the US media, especially television media, and the increasingly negative part of partisan polarization in American politics, it, it's a bit hard to unpack because I think it, it kind of goes both ways. It's exactly. both cause and effect. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that famously, the Republicans some 30, 40 years ago um, started explicitly mm. trying to create alternative conservative um institutions, including media institutions, because they felt rightly or wrongly um, that what were supposed what were at that time deemed to be sort of neutral media communications, they felt were actually skewed towards uh, towards liberals. So they started creating things like Fox News and so forth. And now we're in this interesting place of like, on the one hand, I think that these media outlets are responsive to a market, right? So there is a real marketplace yeah. for um, partisan slanted news, but then they also create their own market because yeah. um, increasingly Fox News defines the reality of the world that uh, of the people who watch it, um, including the president. So it's, um, yeah, we're in a very partisan split place and it's really hard to see how we'll ever get back to anything like neutral truth in the way that kind of, old-fashioned ideas about journalistic uh, objectivity would would suggest is possible yeah I mean I I I guess there is a start of a maybe two possible trends in the U, in the US media that are hopeful on that front one is the rise of things like 538 mm -hmm. uh, you know Nate Silver and and colleagues um where there is a much more explicit pitch at trying to be um data led 
yeah, data led. I was about to say impartial, but they actually are quite opinionated very often yeah. in their pieces. But it's data led opinion. Yeah. Um, so and so there's that trend. The other is I do wonder with things like the New York Times and its huge phenomenal success in the last few years and the way it's really found a successful financial model online. Now, it is very much pitching itself at a particular viewpoint of the world. Um, so it, it's not in that sense directly trying to address the divide. But what that does mean is we've got a different now trend to that rise of what were originally very much actually radio based sort of right wing shock jocks and the like in the US. And then that spreading to other formats of media as well. There is now perhaps overall more of a balance returning with just how popular the New York Times has become. Mm. Um, and you know, looking at the figures for, for example, how many journalists the New York Times employs compared to all the rest of the newspaper industry in the US put together, it is a, it, it, I, I think for people who have been familiar with the New York Times existing for a long time, it, yeah. it's easy to miss just what a behemoth it is now becoming. Yeah, well, I mean, the New York Times is is a fantastic publication of which I'm a subscriber. Um, so I'm I'm by no means mis meaning to um uh, to to malign them in any way, shape or form when I say that it's kind of explainable, though, isn't it, by the same partisan divide that we've been talking about. And in other words, right now, Democrats are highly engaged, mm. highly infuriated, and there's a huge appetite and market for news of outrageous things being done by the by the Trump administration. Um, it makes sense that, therefore, from a commercial point of view, people would then flood to a publication they trust to provide that information, I would argue, much more accurately and, you know, mm. in a much more robust way. But still, it still fits into um in certain cycles, people flood to Fox News to get their to get to get their anti-Democrat bias, and then Democrats flood to institutions like the Times, MSNBC to get their um, to get their Trump bashing. Um, you know, it's not as simple as that, but it, it doesn't feel like we're arriving at a consensus. It feels like we're arriving at con continuously split realities. Yeah, I, I think part of that reflects underlying divisions in U.S. society. You know, there's only so much you can. Uh, expect the editorial direction yeah. <laughs> of a particular media outlet to do to address that. And actually that leads on to some really interesting research that I touched on in the book, not my own research, but other people's research about cause and effect between the political views of media owners and their outlets. So for example, how influential is the owner of a newspaper in influencing its political direction? Mm. And the evidence points much more towards own people who decide to buy a newspaper picking a newspaper that fits their political views rather than they buy a newspaper and then order the staff to change their coverage to match their political views so that if you are say a have right-wing political views you don't go looking for a newspaper that appeals to left-wing readers to buy because you know that you would then be stuck with something where your views and what your business needs to do would be at odds with each other. So right wing people end up buying right wing outlets, left wing people, left wing outlets, liberal people buy liberal outlets. And therefore, the cause and effect is much more driven by the audience, which therefore determines the editorial direction, which therefore determines who, which owners they end up with. Now, the optimism in that is it does mean that when the audience's views change, they can be much more influential. We had this in Britain back in, I guess the best example is probably back in the early 1990s, where the newspaper landscape in Britain then, as it is now, was very much dominated by 
right wing or centre right newspapers. The newspapers of the time, though, turned massively against the Conservative government. And one of the driving factors was the extent to which their readers were, were writing in to tell them how badly affected they were by the mm. recession at the time and how unhappy they were with the government. And so as what was happening was not right wing newspaper owners determining the political agenda, but the readers saying we now really are unhappy with the government mm. and the newspapers having to react to that in order to keep their readers. That's a much healthier situation yeah. and so I think there is an important difference here between talking about how the media cover politicians in power with opposition politicians and this is maybe where the US presidential elections where you don't have an incumbent are a little bit different because you can have that th what is really happening out there making the media have to reflect that through audience mm. pressure in a way that can work for coverage of incumbents of course people who aren't in power don't have a track record that could ever generate that safety net of an audience reaction. Yeah, interesting. So, Mark, if you were in the position of, let's say, I were to hand you the opportunity of being the Biden campaign's chief advisor mm. on managing their press relations, what would you advise the Biden campaign to do in terms of a generating positive coverage of the campaign um, and also avoiding negative coverage, given what you know about the the instincts and the biases of the media. One of Biden's great strengths is his personal empathy. And I saw the clip. Uh, in fact, maybe earlier today I was watching or possibly yesterday when he was on a TV show with John McCain's daughter, Megan McCain. Yes, that's right. And the way that Biden reacted to Meghan McCain talking about the cancer that her father was suffering then was just, you know, amazing. You know, I, if I ever want to have to have some horrible personal news arrive when I'm in the company of, the, <laughs> of a stranger, yeah. you know, Joe Biden is top of my wish list. You know, he's and so I think what the Biden campaign can should do is to look to dis to tell the story, for example, of coronavirus through Joe Biden, showing that empathy and personal support for people who have been really badly affected by it. And I think that set of personal stories can be much more effective than the standard political rhetoric. And one of the reasons I say that is if you look at how people's views have changed over same-sex marriage, mm -hmm. you know, that across multiple countries, there's been a massive shift of people's views on same-sex marriage, even though it's an issue that fundamentally is not, is one about gut feel, you know, that it, facts play a little bit of a role, but it's really about your gut feel. And so why have people's gut feels moved so much? A lot of that is to do with people knowing people. Mm. And so if you know somebody who is in a same-sex relationship, that idea that maybe it should be okay for them to marry, it's very different than if it's, you know, something that you've never encountered and it's an abstract issue or something seen yeah. through the prism of very partisan media. So I think with coronavirus, telling the story about Trump's failures through those personal stories and those personal connections, I think will be much more effective than through uh, the traditional forms of political communication. 
Yeah, and it sort of points out a weakness, um, which we sort of touched on earlier, that the Democrats have some of the same weaknesses that the media do, in that they have a tendency to argue at the level of data. Well, you know, actually, the facts are not this, the facts are that. Whereas what Obama did really well, and what Biden often does well, is argue at the level of personal narrative. You know, I feel your pain. I understand why this happened to you. I'm so sorry. Um, I'm here to help, etc. Much more, much more meaningful at a personal level. Yeah. And there was there's a famous example of this from back in the 1988 US presidential election, Michael Dukakis Mm. and the video clips on YouTube. It's well worth hunting out as a really good example of how to get this wrong. So Michael Dukakis, Democrat candidate for president, opposed the death penalty. And he was asked in a either as a TV debate or an interview, he was asked on TV how he would react if his wife was murdered. And he reacted with a very technocratic, rational answer. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, of course, if my wife was murdered, I would yeah, the death penalty wouldn't be good enough for what I would want <laughs> to do to the person appropriate for that. But you know what? The fact that I would be so angry in response to that and would be so violent in my initial instincts, which we all as humans are, that's the very reason why we yeah. need to have a legal system that takes a step back. Mm. And you know, so there's a way of responding to those issues that can acknowledge the anger and the strength of emotion as opposed to simply saying oh don't be stupid and emotional about this here are some facts yeah so I think, you know, your advice boils down to manufacture opportunities for Biden to demonstrate his person to person human empathy. Mm. But he has to do that from a basement. <laughs> yeah, it's tricky. But I, if anyone can, Biden can. <laughs> Good luck with that, Joe. Yeah. Um, your other book, we talked a lot about bad news today, but your other book was called um, 101 Ways to Win an Election. Would you like to throw, say, two or three ways to win an election at us? Well, one of one of the things I talk about in that book, actually, is the Michael Dukakis example. And yeah. um, I, I guess a, a, a couple of other things in there which are very relevant at the moment is I talk a lot about the importance of the message. Yeah. And, that you know, I love getting into details of the ground game and how you organise the on the ground campaigning and so on. But there's a limit to how much that can achieve. And the message is really important. And the message needs to work, as you were rightly saying earlier, Karen, for people who don't follow the details of politics very much. Um, I love the example that uh, a, a, a bit into the 2017 general election here in Britain, one in five people couldn't name who the leader of the Tory party was, now, even though we were in the election. And that's yeah. not because they're stupid. It's because they decide to spend their time on, on other things. So in that book, I talk quite uh, with my co-author, Ed Maxfield. We talk quite a lot about the importance of messages that actually work and yeah. the storytelling that has to sit um, behind them. The other one of the other things we talk about uh, is actually how the first President Bush, one of the secrets of his political success was the number of thank you notes that he wrote. And one thing I've been trying to make, and I've not quite made a habit of myself, but is whenever I have a bad day or get frustrated to find some gratuitous thank you message that I can send. <laughs> and that might be to go and finally get round to posting a podcast review of a podcast I really like. Yeah. Or it might be saying thank you to somebody for something that, you know, I, I hadn't properly thanked them for before or just finding some 
you know, dropping a quick email to somebody to yeah. praise them. But so if anyone is listening, it does ever get a thank you, you know, note or message out of the blue from me. It is genuinely motivated <laughs> as well, but I find it's quite a good way of counterbalance. And, you know, the, the first person which really demonstrated how much of yeah. digital career you can base on being really good at remembering to say thank you. I always remember a story a, a good friend of mine told about having met Bill Clinton at a funeral one time and he, you know, had a few seconds chat. It was a funeral of somebody who had been active in a, a movement that my my friend worked for, for disability rights. They had a probably 30, 45 second conversation. You know, it was substantive, but yeah. but brief. And then he moved on. And um, he tells the story about, you know, a few weeks later, he received a handwritten note from from Bill Clinton saying, Dear Brewster, I so enjoyed meeting you at the funeral for so and so. Um, And I'm so, so, so delighted to hear about your work on this and such an issue. Um, Keep up the good work, Bill Clinton. And I just thought now that's either he's got a fantastic memory or really good staff work. I'm, I'm just wondering, did he have someone both, behind him both. taking notes or a bit of both? But I thought, what a great practice that is yeah. to just get in the habit of because my friend now, you know, had been slightly ambivalent about Bill Clinton, but loved receiving that note. And he always remembers it. And he's tell he tells everyone that's yeah. politics. <laughs> I wonder if Bill Clinton had a, had sort of bugged himself. So he had a little audio recording so that staff <laughs> could then afterwards work out what all the details were. <laughs> Maybe who I knows? think there are some people who are brilliant at remembering yeah. those little details in their conversation. Here in Britain, Shirley Williams was yeah. was fantastic at a similar way of that immediate emotional engagement. Mm. She was lovely. Right, Mark, have you got a few minutes to play the gut check game with me? Oh, I, can I say no? This sounds worrying. The last <laughs> podcast I did it involved actually a quiz about chocolate. People who know me will know I quite like chocolate. And I found a glorious half out of five on that <laughs> quiz. So I'm slightly, I'm not in any way Don't worry, you can't fail now, this test, I promise. Now. Um all it means, the gut check game is I have um, I have in front of me on some bits of paper um, some some things taken from the campaign trail. This week I have chosen a series of headlines yep. um, from various different US-based news outlets. And I'm just going to read them out in a random order. And all we have to do is just react to it. And in particular, I'd love to hear from you know some of the tips from your book. What would be the things you would be watching out for if you read that headline? Yeah. As you read the story, because you do a lot of things in the book that are really interesting about kind of look out for this, this, you know, this story, you know, check it, check its validity. Um, And you particularly you talk about things like punctuation marks that can 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 get you in a lot of trouble in headlines. So um, I'll pull the story out. Um, Okay, here's one from Fox News, uh, which we've talked about before. Quote, an innocent. So so the headline is an innocent man. Subhead, Trump tears into Obama administration after DOJ drops its case against, quote marks, warrior Flynn. Mm. So I think the the thing this touches on is that immediately rings an alarm bell for me or a note of caution is that what happens with legal actions can often be relatively disconnected from the overall truth or not of something. So, for example, somebody might take out a legal action, but because it doesn't follow the right procedures, that legal action might fail, even though the allegations they might make are true. Or, for example, one popular form of news stories is is based on what's said in court filings where one side has filed its case. Mm -hmm. But the fact that something's been filed with the court, I mean, I could file anything 
you know, I could make any claim in a court filing. That doesn't actually really tend. So that reference to legal makes it sound yeah. more significant and more true than reading the rest of the story may well justify. Yeah. Do you know the story that this is reporting on? I don't think I do, actually. OK, so this is Michael Flynn, um, Trump's former uh, national security advisor who um, was pled guilty to um, obstruction of justice mm. and lying to the FBI um, and the Department of Justice, even though Flynn, Flynn admitted in his court hearing to having done this, the DOJ has now said that they don't have enough evidence and they don't think they can prosecute it. Mm. Um, and it has been widely reported as being um miss you know basically a, a intervention by by William Barr the attorney general into into um into the justice uh, system so it's it's a very controversial to say the least case um and democrats are absolutely furious about it as are as are a lot of yeah. kind of legal scholars it's it's very much contrary to um but you wouldn't get any of that context from this headline no, and, and also i it, it sounds like this is one of those cases where who wins the legal argument may not be the same as what is true about the underlying events and yeah. um, just to give another example something that happened in britain a few years back as a political funding scandal involving the labor party here they got investigated and all of that and in the end nobody was prosecuted so one way of covering that and this was the predominant media way of covering it was either that they were innocent yeah or that it was appalling the regulators had failed to not if you probe into the detail, the problem that the regulator said was that three different former Labour Party treasurers had given conflicting evidence and they couldn't work out which one was telling the truth. Right. So it's it's very legitimate to both think that, yes, the legal outcome was correct. How can you prosecute if you've just got three people's words against each other? And yet also think, despite the fact that no one was convicted, I'm sure somebody was guilty. Yeah. Uh, and so quite, the truth in that sense and the legal outcome don't always go together. Yeah. Here's another headline. Um, starts in starts in quote marks, quote, full steam ahead, end quote, for Trump's convention, question mark. North Carolina has doubts. That that is that sounds like a desperately uh, unsure committee can't quite <laughs> work out what uh, no, the committee uh, is the entire state of North Carolina yeah, it's, <laughs> I mean there's as much there's loads of indecision and doubt in in that headline on its own the the couple of things to watch out for there is one is the question mark yep basic rule of news headlines is if the headline is a question the answer is no that is pretty nearly always the case the other thing is the, the use of the phrase full steam ahead in quote marks that sounds like that's a bit of rhetoric from somebody who may or may not be a well-placed source mm. and in fact they may be somebody who has a commercial interest in the convention going ahead so there are some people who will be wanting to talk up the likelihood of the convention going ahead because they are invested in the convention business and the knock on economic benefits from a physical convention going ahead. So that having a quote just like that, I, yeah. one of the things I would immediately think is, well, who is this person? You know, if it, that's Trump saying it or if it's yeah. the chair of the National Committee saying it, that's one thing. If it's anonymous quote or chief exec of the convention center business that's a very different so there's a whole that quote may well not be nearly as as yeah. 
strong a statement as it sounds on its own in the headline. Yeah. So something to watch for as you read the story. I didn't say, by the way, that's a New York Times headline. Um, I was really but that's struck- the New York Times. That, that, that- if you ever wanted to caricature the New York Times, <laughs> you'd be hard pressed to beat that headline. for pain Well, it is, it is. That's what I thought. I was like, they have no idea what the story is here. Like, I, I don't know. And, what and the combination to of quotes, mark, quote marks and the <laughs> question mark. It's and- where I get. And, and this partly gets back to actually one of the points I make in the book, which is I strongly suspect my conclusion at the end of reading that story would be nobody's got any idea we're better off just concluding don't know let's come back to this story in the future yeah um here's another one this is from msnbc's Mm. the chris hayes show um it says coronavirus conspiracy conspiracy theories are ravaging er's and doctors are fed up hmm well, I guess this touches on one of the tricky points about to what extent should you talk about things that are untrue and do you risk giving them more airtime? The doctors are fed up bit rings a little bit of an alarm bell for me because, of course, that might be true. Yeah, I guess it probably I- I'm sure there true. are doctors who are fed but up. It, it gives it's it, that sort of headline normally is based comes from a story that is based on some interviews. And it's really hard to tell how typical those interviews are. Yeah. And so you've got a real risk of it. what might sound like a convincing story, because it's got extracts from interviews with maybe five different doctors. But they are, in the end, only five doctors. And how are those doctors chosen? How typical are they really of everyone else's views? And you know what? The doctor who say, has a slightly bland, boring answer is the one who almost certainly doesn't make the cut for the final story. It's a real giveaway that when in stories that quote lots of witnesses in that sense, none of them are the ones of the it's dull, it's boring, it's nothing to say, nothing really to see here. And that's yeah. not because that's never the truth. It's because that's just boring. Therefore, it doesn't make it into a new story. <laughs> so I, I would be nervous about the implication of the source of, of of the story and how robust that really is. Yeah. That would definitely be something to look for as I read through it. I think it's a really interesting one because I actually I watched the um, the, sh- the story that that the headline describes and it's a really interesting story. It's one that I I think you know we would want to be able to report about. You know there are protests happening. There are a lot of there's a lot of um, things that are disruptive in the hospital setting that doctors are having to deal with, and so they did interview some doctors with a very compelling case to make. And I was thinking to myself, how would I write that headline? Because I had the same reaction you did. It's like, well, I'm sure not every doctor in the world is fed up, and I don't, I'm not quite sure. To to what extent this is a, you know, a valid description of the the life of a medical practitioner. But equally, I would want to be able to hear from those doctors who are fed up because I thought it was an interesting mm. angle on it. And I just wasn't quite sure how I would have written that headline. Yeah. And and what it also illustrates, thinking about the protesters side of, of that headline, is the the big majority of people are often cut out from the news story. So for every protester there is probably certainly tens of thousands maybe even hundreds of thousands of americans who would take a different take on it yeah but it's yeah. the one person with the gun and the balaclava that gets the news it's all of those others actually sitting quietly and safely indoors for as long as they can each day who yeah. doesn't make it into the story 
And that that is a really big problem in coverage of the corona, coronavirus, because um, polling suggests, to the extent that you think the polling is accurate, but it seems to be consistent on this, um, that the vast majority of Americans support the idea of, of shutting down um, and staying home, and that most people are complying pretty well with this. It only takes a few hundred, which in you know, a nation of 300 and whatever, 350 million or so, you can always find a few hundred mm. people to do anything. Um, and yet, of course, it's visually compelling to watch protesters um, out on the streets when the streets are otherwise empty. Um, and it is a kind of a story that generates a lot of anxiety and interest. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's difficult to find the balance between not covering it at all, but also putting into the context of they don't seem to represent a large, you know, yeah. certainly not even a majority yeah, and and certainly, um, I mean, there's there's a was a fascinating little um, problem, you know, within the last few days about trying to the truth or not about whether at one of these protests somebody was holding up a sign with a Nazi slogan on it, mm. and the truth got very messy because there was a previous fact-checking story about a similar sign but at a different protest, which people yeah. wrongly thought was about this particular protest and so on, but. <laughs> It certainly does seem to be the case that some of the protesters are deeply unpleasant people. And in a way, the the correct response, maybe not correct, but the response at least I would take is to say, OK, because of coronavirus, deeply unpleasant, nasty person is now doing this. If it weren't for coronavirus, they would yeah. be doing something else. It's not that, oh, my goodness, people, you know, society is is is, is all going wrong or something mm. like it's deeply unpleasant people choose the way in which they express their unpleasantness depending on the situation now i'm sure amongst the protesters you know that's not the only group of people there but i'm sure quite, there are good people <laughs> that you know I'm, I, but 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 it is an illustration yeah. of how um you, you need that broader context yeah I think that's um, and that kind of flags up something that's probably a running theme, which is that that's the harder way to cover the story, because to cover it that way, you can't just go to the protest, take some pictures and report on it. You have to find out who are these individuals? Um, you know, what do they do when they're not doing this? You know, have they got previous um, previous form in protesting? You know, what are the issues that engage them? Um, and that can be hard to identify. But as you say, in many cases, what happens when you scratch beneath the surface is that in this particular case, you're finding some of these people have some very unsavory right-wing connections and also and you know i i guess there may well be some people in some of the protests who have a legitimate complaint about an mm. element of how the lockdown has been implemented in their state yeah. certainly i'm i'm aware that in the in britain although we've had nothing like those sorts of protests if you look at the different government support packages there have been all sorts of little wrinkles and omissions and and mistakes made along the way in drawing them up so it would be amazing if across all of the different u.s states there weren't yep. some legitimate grounds for complaint that might be being wrapped up in some of these protests um and it's striking that in the news coverage at least i've seen here in the uk of it there's no sense of whether the media have really tried to find that out or not now maybe yeah. they have and none of that exists but you're um, at best you're just taking it purely on trust yeah. that there is nothing that has gone wrong with any detail of any regulation that might therefore incite somebody to yeah. to protest right one last headline um to end on this is a, this is a fun one um it's from channel two news cbs pittsburgh mm -hmm. 
And it's uh, I'd take her in a heartbeat. Joe Biden, Joe Biden says he would pick Michelle Obama to be his vice president. What stands out for you there? I would be amazed if that is not a quote taken out of context, <laughs> um, because if it a, if it were true, why is it not the BBC News headline as well? Yeah. This yeah. Morning? But be that phrase. It's really easy to imagine contexts yeah. in which the that answer that is quoted is essentially a in a different world from the current one in some form. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely it's the conditional, isn't it? That I would. Yeah, it's exactly that. That's definitely a, what was the question that he was responding to needs to be known before you can judge the story. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a bit of wishful thinking on the part of the media in this case, I think, because it would be such a great story to cover. Um, but if you read and, and the, the story is kind of just I, I had a look at it kind of straightforwardly. And to be fair, I don't think he was necessarily quoted out of context. It's, you know, would you consider Michelle Obama for your for your VP? And he says, of course I would. I'd take her in a heartbeat. She's wonderful. I adore her. She's great. Um, but it's only kind of at the bottom of the story that he says, of course, she has no interest. That's that's not it's not going to happen. Exactly. <laughs> but, it it, it may may well be that he gave that answer because he knows it's not going to happen yeah and, and he, that he says that it was a like, real prospect yeah. and in, indeed that you know the, the very fact that he says he would pick her illustrates that he's not going to pick her <laughs> exactly and i think you know the headline doesn't make that clear but you can kind of get to it by he says he says he would pick michelle obama well if she were on his short list along with lots of other people he would be more circumspect wouldn't he he would have to say yeah. well you know, there are so many wonderful people we're looking at. Michelle's obviously on the list, but we're looking at everybody else. It, it's not going to happen. And mm. I think that, you he know, wouldn't whilst being be accurate. Scooping himself. <laughs> no, he would be in scooping himself indeed. Although Joe Biden has a tendency to do that. So. That's, yes, that's true, actually. <laughs> uh, Mark, listen, it's been great talking to you. Any final thoughts before we go? No, it's been absolutely fascinating talking talking with you as well. I, I guess the sort of the, the note on which I end the book is maybe a good so final note here as well, which is that the news might be bad often. It might be poorly put together, misleading, etc. But if you know what to look for, whilst the news might be bad, we don't have to be. We can be smarter and better than that. Well, there you go. That's the good news, isn't it? Exactly. Hi, it's Mark here again. Really hope you enjoyed listening to that. If you did, I really would encourage you go and subscribe to Karen's podcast. It's called Democratically 2020. You can also find Karen on Twitter at Karen JR. That's K-A-R-I-N-J-R. You can find me on Twitter at Mark Pack and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. I should also say if you're tempted by the sound of my book, Bad News, and you'd like to get a free chapter to sample it a little bit more before deciding whether to read the whole thing or not, if you go to markpack.org.uk forward slash bad news, you can sign up to get a whole chapter completely free by email. Thanks again very much for listening.